For many executives and business people, it's been a long time since they were able to visit China. Quarantine expectations, paperwork, and the process of finding flights all add up to a relatively large expense, both in time and finances. But still, visiting the country is important, be it to see friends and family or just to check up on local operations. So this week, we bring you two stories of travel to China. One is from Jack Kamensky, our Senior Director of Business Advisory Services in Washington, who is currently traveling with USCBC President Craig Allen in China at the moment. And then the other story is from Lance Yao, one of our Business Advisory Services Managers in Beijing, who recently visited family in Hong Kong and then traveled back to the mainland after. From the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Ian Hutchinson, and this is the China Business Minute. So first this week, we wanted to catch up with Jack Kamensky, the head of our Business Advisory Services Department in D.C. He's currently joining our president, Craig Allen, on a trip to China, which is Craig's first in three years. So, Jack, thanks for taking a bit of time to chat with us. Hey, Ian. Glad to be here. So, so how does it feel for you to be going back to China? It's been a while since you've been, I think. It's exciting to be back. It's been five years since the last time I was in China, and I've started to feel a bit divorced from reality following developments in the country from afar in D.C. At the same time, though, it feels odd. I can't really say yet what things are like on the ground because all I've experienced so far has been the view from my quarantine hotel window. Um, I would say, though, that it's exponentially more difficult to travel to China than pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, and so what kind of preparation did you have to do before you left for this trip? This involved a ton of work, uh, and, and I would primarily put this into three buckets. One is booking flights, uh, another is applying for a visa, and a third is conducting pre-departure COVID tests. So booking a flight was complex and expensive. It's definitely best to take a direct flight to China because if you transfer in another country, you'll need to redo all of the pre-departure tests. There's a lot of uncertainty around booking, though, because flight routes can be suspended at any time for exceeding a certain threshold of COVID cases. And because of the lack of flights, tickets are many times more expensive than before. So it's probably a good idea to purchase refundable tickets in case you catch COVID before your trip and can't travel. But again, these are often even more expensive. Another hurdle is the visa application. Uh, So the requirements and forms to apply for a Chinese business or M visa are similar to those from before the pandemic, but there's now a multi-stage vetting process involving email exchanges with the embassy or relevant consulate. Applicants are required to fill out a lengthy online form and mail in documents rather than hire a courier or deliver them personally. The entire application process for us probably took around three weeks to a month. Um, And China is currently only issuing single entry visas uh, that are valid for 90 days. The 10 year visas from prior to the pandemic still remain suspended. Uh, And then, of course, there are the pre-departure tests. So travelers must take two COVID tests at two different labs using different testing reagents within 48 hours of travel and 24 hours apart. So uh, a lot to organize logistically there. Um, There are also some additional requirements that apply if you've ever tested positive on a PCR test or have had recent close contact with someone who was infected. 
the current requirements do allow pre-departure testing to be conducted at any CLIA certified lab and don't necessarily require travelers to conduct tests in their city of departure. But we heard some conflicting accounts on which labs in DC uh, the embassy would accept tests from. So we decided to be conservative and fly to the departure city, um, in our case, Dallas, Texas, uh, where the testing labs were familiar with China travel requirements. Foreign travelers can apply for a health declaration code, or HDC, using a link available on the embassy website. Um, the application process requires a lot of the same documents as the visa application, and I think it took the embassy about five hours to process our HDC codes, at which point they turned green. All right, so you did all this work, you, you get all your paperwork ready, you cross the ocean, you touch down in China. So what was the arrivals process like once you were actually off the plane? Arrival in China made it clear just how much more frequently two technologies are used there compared to the United States. I think we saw both QR codes and facial recognition technology at every step of the way. The airline required us to present two codes to board the plane. One was the HDC code that I already described, and the other was a Chinese customs health declaration, which was relatively easy to fill out after scanning a QR code with WeChat. The plane itself was probably only 20% full, but other than that, the flight was just like any other until we arrived. When we did arrive, uh, the Pudong airport was empty except for our flight and personnel wearing white hazmat suits, which the Chinese affectionately call dabai, or big whites. Uh, the two key things that are required upon arrival are a cell phone uh, with internet access and WeChat. I did not have an active Chinese phone number, uh, so to ensure internet access, I signed up for international roaming with my U.S. carrier beforehand. It's very difficult to get a Chinese phone number outside of China because of real name registration requirements, but it is possible to get through the arrival process without one. So then following deplaning, we were taken through a series of stations where you can scan your customs code at multiple points, take facial scans, pick up luggage, and do a COVID test. Uh, at customs, the officers were polite, but and questioned us quite intensely. They wanted to know who we worked for, what our job positions were, the details of our itinerary, what our destination address was, why we were in China. And they even demanded that we produce our invitation letters, which I was luckily able to find panic scrolling through my email. Uh, then you go to the departure area, scan yet another QR code and fill out a form and wait to board the bus to the quarantine hotel. They take your passport when you leave the airport, which was a bit unnerving, but you get it back uh, as soon as you get to the hotel. So speaking of the hotel, once you're there, what was the quarantine process like? While it's not ideal to be stuck by yourself in a room for 10 days, overall it hasn't been too bad. Our Shanghai office was able to liaise with the Shanghai Foreign Affairs office to arrange a nicer quarantine hotel, so our rooms are pretty spacious and the food isn't too bad. You are allowed to order online deliveries of goods and non-perishable food, but no takeout. Our Shanghai offices were kind enough to send us care packages, so we have all sorts of snacks. Internet connectivity has been a bit challenging. Uh, I would definitely recommend having a local contact arranged to mail you a reliable hotspot as soon as you arrive. On arrival, we scanned a QR code uh, to check into quarantine, and that's what determines the time that you're released 10 days later. We'll need to register for a local health code like uh, Sui Shenban in Shanghai or HealthKit in Beijing, uh, which are accessible as many programs in WeChat and Alipay. These health codes will turn green on your release. 
once we are out, we'll need to take COVID tests every couple of days, since most places require you to scan uh, both your green code as well as show that you've had a COVID test recently uh, to allow you in. And then, so what are the rest of the plans you have for your trip? I know members are pretty interested in the trip and what you and Craig are, are getting up to while you're in China. We have a busy schedule ahead of us here in Shanghai. November 1st will be our CHOPS conference, and then the China International Import Expo starts a few days later. Uh, from there, we plan to attend the World Internet Conference in Wuzhen, and COVID allowing, we'll continue on to Beijing for the rest of the trip. Excellent. Well, thank you for telling us a bit about the experience. Thanks, Ian. Great to be on the program again. All right. So Jack and Craig give a good example of what the process of traveling to China can be like for someone coming from the United States, especially if you have the help of local contacts on the ground who can help you with logistics and preparation. But of course, not every trip to China starts in the United States. Our colleague Lance Yao, a BAS manager in our Beijing office, also recently returned to the mainland after a visit to Hong Kong to see some of his family, and his experience was a little different. So to get that contrast and comparison, we wanted to chat with him as well a bit about his experience. So Lance, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking some time to chat with us. Hey, Ian. Thanks for having me on. So you recently left Beijing for a trip to Hong Kong. So so what led you there? Visiting family, I think, right? It's a little bit about myself is that I have family in both Hong Kong and the U.S., it's also been more than three years since I've seen any of them. Between those two options, uh, I decided that Hong Kong was probably the easiest to get to um, and back into uh, mainland China. Recently, Hong Kong also ended its uh, quarantine requirements uh, for people coming from the mainland. Um, but what kind of preparation did you have to do to go from mainland China to Hong Kong? The preparation beforehand uh, required obviously looking into uh, the necessary quarantine. And in terms of testing and other paperwork, generally uh, go, coming from mainland China uh, to Hong Kong uh, is fairly straightforward um, in terms of uh, the paperwork that you're filling and just the requirements. I also am a Hong Kong ID holder. So I would be going back to Hong Kong under what the Hong Kong government calls a return to HK scheme. It was meant to be like a facilitated channel uh, for, for Hong Kongers going back to Hong Kong. You, there's about 1,000 slots per day of people coming from mainland China. Um, there's a limit of 1,000 people. That also requires you to book sort of a point, uh, make an appointment with the Hong Kong government uh, before you can even purchase your plane tickets. Um, or train tickets or something like that. Um, so in, during this whole application process, you also need to uh, demonstrate so that you also have a green code, like a green QR code. Mm -hmm. and, and once you get to Hong Kong, what's the, the arrivals process look like? When you get there uh, to Hong Kong, it's different for um, you know, different types of people. What I mean by that is that there are three sort of uh, channels. Uh, one is the one for international travelers, uh, non-Chinese, non-Hong Kongers. Then you have uh, Chinese nationals, but those who are not Hong Kong uh, IT holders. And then you have uh, those, uh, then you have the channel for uh, Hong Kong ID holders, basically Hong Kongers. It took me 10 minutes for me to get off the plane, um, talk to uh, some of the people who gave me some paperwork on sort of the PCR tests I would need to do. So that's when you arrive in Hong Kong. And, that, that's, and that's everything I've discussed so far has been a fairly painless process uh, compared to getting back into mainland China. 
Okay, so you are in Hong Kong, you see your family, you're ready to get back to Beijing, back to the office. So you've, you've alluded that that process was a little more thorny. So, so walk us through that. What all did you have to do there? So going back to Beijing requires a few things. And these are requirements set by the Beijing city government. Uh, you require at least one uh, 48-hour uh, PCR test taken within the, before, uh, the, within the 40 hours before departure, and a PCR test taken the day of, um, your, of your flight. So that's two tests. So I, I do my 40 hours, not a problem. I get to the airport. Um, first thing I do when I get to the airport uh, is go straight to the area where you take your PCR test. Anyway, I make sure to get that test taken care of, um, and I'm just waiting uh, for the test results before I can go and start checking in. You can't even check in before you get your test results. And then I get the test results. Now it's around 12. It took about three hours. Um, it's fine. I can perhaps, uh, it's the time, finally time to go, get my boarding pass. Um, and then I get there to the line, and I'm notified that, well, sir, you've gotten uh, your two tests required. Um, but you don't have your third test. And you know, this is sort of where my heart sinks. That is when I learn, you know, I should have been cognizant about this beforehand, uh, that ho- the Hong Kong government also requires or its own test done before you leave Hong Kong to anywhere. Now, this is where things uh, sort of get frustrating because this test from the Hong Kong government, uh, mandated by Hong Kong government, um, is also another same-day PCR test. This same day, this third PCR test is done at the same exact spot where I did my PCR test in the morning. It's the same company, the same type of COVID test. Um, yet the one that I took that morning could not count as the one that fills this checkbox. So it, it basically required me to sort of rush back to that testing station uh, and sort of try to persuade them to see if I could get my test results uh, within two hours so I can make it to my plane. And thankfully I did, but that was a very hectic moment. That certainly sounds very stressful. Um, but you managed to get on your flight, you land in Beijing. So then, then what happens then? I am arriving in Beijing International Airport. Um, and after spending five hours at the airport doing uh, the tests, the customs, uh, things like that, uh, we, everyone from the flight, it's the same exact flight, it's put onto a set of buses. Um, and once you're in, uh, you're, get a, you're given uh, a bunch of papers um, and instruction of what your quarantine is going to be like, um, any problems, contact these things, contact these numbers. Um, I'd say the instructions are all fairly well presented. Uh, it's bilingual. You have the option of joining um, a WeChat group. Uh, there's an English WeChat group and there's a Chinese WeChat group free to join. Um, and this is through this WeChat group. Uh, this is how the quarantine management provides uh, updates. All in all, I was lucky in a sense. Um, most people were, st- based on the pictures that were shared in group chat, um, was lim- were limited to a very small room. Um, a bed, um, a shower, uh, and a window. Uh, the place that I was in happened to be a double room, and I was there for 10 days. I mentioned that we were put into a WeChat group, and this WeChat group, as mentioned, is a way for them to disseminate updates, uh, things like uh, when your food will be sent, when the COVID tests will be uh, conducted uh, the next day, um, any sort of other administrative issue. Now. 
after or after over a week, um, people were understandably a bit tired, um, a bit losing you know, their sort of patience with some of the things that were happening in terms of the responsiveness of the management staff, in terms of the quality of the food that, that they might have been getting, um, various factors. And one day, uh, someone in this group chat essentially pointed out that the management staff had not actually given uh, any of the residents a specific time of when we'd be released from our quarantine. There is a there was always a date said, but there's a bit of lack of clarity as to when released exactly what time. Which is important as people would need people to uh, get picked up. You know, they'd have to either catch uh, other transportation, things like that. And then the management staff, uh, you know, did in like a group uh, broadcast, uh, like or message, tagging everyone, uh, letting everyone know that they'd actually be keeping us until the morning after uh, our technical uh, 10 days. Immediately after that was disseminated, you had a sort of movement within the group chat to point out the legitimacy of this argument, questioning why it's unsafe uh, in Beijing, has, or has, why, as one quote, as I quote one, has become so unsafe in Beijing that it's impossible for grown adults to be released at night. Um, and uh, this was eventually cumulated in uh, one random person uh, using WeChat's uh, own group chat tools to sort of create a referendum as to whether people or how many people in the group uh, would like to leave, be released from quarantine the exact uh, hour that we, that we were sent, uh, that we entered quarantine, the exact 10 days. Um, and out of a group chat of about 140, 130 people, uh, you had easily over 100 people uh, agree to this referendum question. After half a day, the management staff sent out another broadcast or a message tagging it, uh, simply stating that everyone would be released at the proper time at midnight. Interesting. Um, so, so what has your kind of main takeaway been from this process of going from the mainland to Hong Kong and, and back again, if you've got one? The general sense is that it's always in a constant state of flux. There's always, despite, you know, the instructions phase, you know, when, it got, when, it, when they provide you the instructions or like what to do or how to manage your quarantine, despite that phase being quite well done and probably the easiest to follow as it's literally something that you can write uh, and plan ahead of time. When the quarantine process encounters unexpected difficulties, um, it's the, it seems that the entire process sort of freezes and faces a sort of uh, gridlock. And you know, even this, and again, despite it being this long uh, into the pandemic, it seems that this is a constant um, from what we hear in Beijing, what we hear in other cities. Um, so. That's uh, the state of traveling uh, outside of or on the boundaries of China uh, and going back to the capital uh, in October 2022. And we shall see if this changes. Uh, it's unknown, but uh, you know, it's hard, really, really hard to predict. Um, but if this policy, if this policy approach continues, uh, I'd say that we do probably see the same difficulties or challenges or lack of flexibility uh, going forward. Indeed. Okay, well, we shall see how things change over the coming months. But regardless, it's been pretty interesting to hear your experience about the process. So thank you for taking some time to, uh, to share with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking these great questions. Uh, and it's always a pleasure to talk about 
uh, sort of the fun aspects of traveling, or as fun as you can make them be. So there you have it, two stories of returning to mainland China, one from the United States and one from Hong Kong. Again, Jack Kamensky is our Senior Director of Business Advisory Services in Washington, D.C., and Lance Yao is a Business Advisory Services Manager in Beijing. If you're a USCBC member and you're in the process of heading to China and have questions, feel free to reach out to us. You can find my email in the show notes. And we also have some details about Craig Allen's trip to China, which you will also find linked below. Hopefully these stories were interesting or useful to you. The China Business Minute is a production of the U.S.-China Business Council. You can learn more about the work that we do on our website, uschina.org. And if you like the show, please do leave it a rating and a review as it will help other people to find it. And as always, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week.